The Bible reading today comes from chapter 11, verses 17 to 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, in the resurrection, and the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Well, thank you, Bonnie. It's been wonderful having uh, some young people uh, read the Bible for us lately. Uh, and we've been looking at the victories of Easter. And obviously, this is the great culmination. And today, we celebrate the life uh, that was won uh, in the Lord Jesus' resurrection. Uh, so I do encourage you, if you have your Bibles, open them up. Uh, today, I'm not going to have anything on the screen uh, I just want you to look and listen to me, uh, but no, it's, um, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at uh, some of these words of Jesus and, and I guess hopefully being confronted by the realities of what the resurrection uh, means for us. So let me pray and uh, we'll have a look. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you that we can open your word with great confidence. We thank you that we come to it not out of suspicion or uncertainty, but knowing that your Holy Spirit has uh, written these words through your apostles and prophets, through those you have ordained. And Father, we come confidently knowing, as you say in Ephesians, that this is the double-edged sword of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will use these words to penetrate our hearts and encourage us and convict us and rebuke us and train us in righteousness. So Father God, bless us now as we consider this great truth of the resurrection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the privileges I have, and it's been quite a frequent uh, privilege since I've been here, is to sit with families uh, after they have lost a loved one. It's never a great time, uh, but it's a very meaningful time. And it's a time that I do always say is a great privilege uh, there's this period between someone dying, and many of you understand this, and the actual memorial service or the funeral or whatever it is that we end up having, that it's like this in-between moment. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment where people, you don't know how people are going to respond. You don't know how you are going to respond. But it's a real privilege to sit with people in this time simply because... <laughs> They have just gone through one of the most devastating uh, times of their life often. And, uh, and sometimes I will attend a funeral and I'm not doing the service and I will hear people talk about, 
oh, but we all just need to celebrate because we know he's been resurrected with God. He's now in heaven. He's now... But there's something that's missing when we talk about resurrection in those terms. And I think this passage that we are looking at this morning highlights just the realities of our humanity and the realities of Easter that are all concentrated in this moment when someone has died and those who are still here have to grapple with the grief and the truth around that. See, what's happening is that Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, Martha and Mary's brother, has died. Now, he wouldn't have been an old man. Seems like Jesus loved him. Well, we know Jesus loved him. He was probably around Jesus' age. He wouldn't have been too much older than him. And here we have this terrible situation where he's died. And Mary and Martha, it's been four days and they've called for Jesus to come. And he's finally arrived. And Martha says, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would have not died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's an interesting conversation that's happening. There's grief And Martha knows, look at that word, knows, I know he will rise again. She intellectually gets it. We have that hope, don't we? We know there's a resurrection and we know what we're taught. We know. So we grasp hold of that. But Jesus then says this to her, I, I am the resurrection. And the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he says this to her. Do you believe? Notice how he's moved it from knowing to believing. Do you believe? Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. In other words, the promised saviour of the world, the son of God who is to come into the world. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens died of cancer. Uh, He was one of the most well-known atheists. Uh, He regularly had uh, debates with Christian thinkers uh, you, some of you would have seen those debates on YouTube or, or on TV. And to organise those debates, Hitchens' publicist uh, contacted a Christian author called Larry Taunton. And Larry Taunton used to organise these debates. Uh, but over the following years, Hitchens and Taunton uh, developed an unlikely friendship. They became quite good friends to the point where Hitchens would stay at Taunton's home uh, and prior to Hitchens' death from cancer, they actually took two long road trips together. So you've got this, this profound atheist with this profound Christian thinker 
on road trips together, and you can imagine some of the wonderful conversations. See, Taunton has since published a book titled The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, The Restless Soul of the World's Most Notorious Atheist. And he says in this book that Taunton describes what happened on one of those road trips. He says, My mind goes back to the Shenandoah. The skies are clear, the autumn leaves are translucent in the early, uh, early afternoon sun, and the road ahead of us is open. In a strong, clear voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. He's reading this very passage out loud. And reaching the 25th and 26th verses, his face lights up with recognition. He stops. I know this one too, he says. I didn't recall its connection with the resurrection of Lazarus. Oh, it's a great verse, I add, sensing we have reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, Christopher says. And then taking his reading glasses off, he turns to me and asks, Do you believest thou, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I do, but you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believest thou this, Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever repost, he hesitates and speaks with unexpected transparency. I'll admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. So these are the verses that say that Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. See, that's the big question that, uh, that Christopher Hitchens was confronted with and we are all confronted with. There is no greater question that we can face in our life and there is no sitting on the fence on this. Jesus outrightly, he asks Martha, but he asks each and every one of us, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Not that you know it. Not that you've intellectually put it into your systematic theology just in the, under the eschatology section. Do you believe that I... I am the resurrection. That unless you put your belief, your faith in me, you have nothing to look forward to after death. It's a really confronting moment in not just the scripture, but it should be a confronting moment for each of us as we come here to celebrate the resurrection. The question isn't, do you know about it? Do you know the, 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 the intellectual ascent of it? But do you believe it? Have you taken it into your heart? And are you able to declare with Martha, I believe that you are the Messiah? The one that Isaiah wrote about 700 years before the one that Ezekiel wrote about, the one that all the prophets of the Old Testament pointed to, the one that Daniel looked forward to, the one that everyone who knew the promises of God were hoping for, the one that Abraham 
when he was said, leave this land and was promised a land flowing in milk and honey, the one that he believed the promises of God and that credited him with righteousness. By faith you are saved, we are told. So this is what we're asked this morning. Do you believe this? Well, do you? Think about it. A man was raised from the dead. That's not an easy task. Uh, Paul, when he was confronted uh, on trial, he started talking about the resurrection. And what was he confronted with? Your great learning has made you mad. He writes at the beginning of Corinthians, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, but it is the power of God for all those who believe. And right at the heart of this foolishness is believing that Jesus actually rose from the, rose from the dead. I can guarantee that you can go to each and every funeral, each and every memorial service, and you can hope for that person. Well, in this passage, as the one who is the resurrection and the life, He's not interested in our assent intellectually. He's interested in our hearts. Because he was a man of heart. Right after where we finish this reading, or later on, he's had the same interaction with Mary, Martha's sister. She asks him exactly the same question. Uh, She says exactly the same thing as what Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, in verse uh, 32, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but this time it's too much for Jesus. This is a man he loved. This is one of his great friends. uh, These are siblings that his heart was bound to in all of his humanity. And we're told that Jesus wept. He broke down. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord. In verse 35, Jesus wept. See, when Jesus was laid in the tomb, they wept. Just as there's a gathering, this was only two miles, so what's that? That's 3.2 kilometres outside of Jerusalem, you know, a 40-minute stroll. Lots of people had come to their house here in Bethany to mourn with them, to comfort them. And just as Jesus died, they all gathered together to comfort each other, to console one another. There's no hope that anyone's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus had said it over and over again that he was to be raised from the dead, but you can't believe that. And so there they are, mourning and weeping. And the women go to embalm the body, (laughs) but he's not there. Who's taken the body? No one's taken the body. He he, He has risen. You see, where Lazarus was raised or resuscitated back to life, he was to die again. But Jesus was showing his power. He was demonstrating his authority. He was saying, yes, Martha, 
I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. Look at the power I have to resuscitate this man. And it is a pointer and a a view towards a future day where Jesus himself will raise us from the dead. And how do we know he has that power? Because on the third day, he himself was raised from the dead. But do you believe this? I'll tell you what, there's a lot of sceptics in our world. I used to be a great sceptic. I thought this was all a a great deal of uh, hogwash, as I will use an old term I've never used before. Uh, But there was a fella, um, there was a a fella who was a forensic detective. His name was J. Warner Wallace, and he specialised in cold case investigations. And he became intrigued with the Gospels and the account of Jesus' resurrection. And he says, the most important question I could ask about Christianity just so happened to fall within my area of expertise. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? It would prove to be the ultimate cold case forensic investigation because eyewitnesses and material evidence that could be used to prove or disprove what happened have been gone for nearly 2,000 years. Yet Wallace came away utterly convinced, utterly convinced that it was true. As an atheist, Wallace had always assumed that the resurrection was a lie, believing that the 12 apostles concocted, executed, and maintained the most elaborate and influential conspiracy of all time. That was what he believed. When Wallace looked at the evidence and as an unbeliever, he found four minimal facts to be substantiated by both friends and foes of Christianity. One, Jesus died on the cross and was buried. Two, Jesus' tomb was empty and no one ever produced his body. Three, Jesus' disciples believed that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Four, Jesus' disciples were transformed following their alleged resurrection observations. Wallace then tells how he used the the kind of abductive reasoning he would use at a crime scene. He says, inferring the most reasonable explanation and came up with several hypotheses. One, the disciples were mistaken about Jesus' death. He survived and he appeared to, uh, to disciples after he recovered. And he says, but this theory fails to explain what the disciples saw when they brought Jesus down from the cross. They would have checked him. It is reasonable to believe, he says, they would have have not noticed any of... It's not reasonable to think that they wouldn't have noticed any of the conditions common to dead bodies. Two, the disciples stole the body and fabricated the story. While this explanation accounts for the empty tomb, it fails to account for the transformed lives of the apostles. If you truly know that someone's dead and you're trying to believe that he's alive, it's not going to have the impact it did on Peter, who denied Christ three times, but then preached the most resounding sermon uh, after after Pentecost. Three, the disciples were delusional. This fails to account for the empty tomb. More importantly, Wallace argues that he has never encountered large groups having identical hallucinations. Four, an imposter tricked the disciples, convincing them that Jesus was alive. Well, this theory fails to account for the empty tomb and requires an impersonator. By nature, the disciples were highly sceptical. They weren't expecting him to raise from the dead. 
Or five, the resurrection is a wildly exaggerated legend that grew exponentially over time. This theory clashes with the record of witnesses making claims about the resurrection from the earliest days of the Christian movement. Paul talks about five hundreds of disciples all in the same place having witnessed the resurrected Christ. And he concludes, this atheist, the forensic scientist, says the resurrection is reasonable. The answers are available. You don't have to turn off your brain to be a believer. Wallace joins a long line of intellectuals who are part of the resurrection genre of writers, skeptics who started out to disprove the resurrection and ended up believing that it is true. Now, maybe some of these arguments you've heard, they stole the body, they did this, oh, it's all just a legend, it's not true. There is more historical record of Jesus' life and all that happened than any other historical figure. If this was to be disproved, it would have been done so. No one wanted this to be true. In fact, the apostles and the, the disciples didn't expect it to be true. And this is why it's so remarkable. A forensic investigator has said the most reasonable conclusion is that Jesus raised again from the dead. See, this isn't blind faith we're talking about. This is a faith that is grounded in reason. It is grounded in historical reality. It is grounded in the most reasonable thing you can believe. Do you believest thou as Christopher Hitchens himself put it. See, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he makes that claim because he knows he has the authority. He knows he is the resurrection. Not only did he raise Lazarus from the dead, but he himself was raised from the dead. And all authority in heaven and on earth, he says, has been given me. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is risen. And that makes all the difference. And I want to challenge you this morning. Do you know this? Or do you believe this? Because knowing it will probably make no difference to your life. But believing it That will redefine your life. It will change your life. And you will go into a hope that goes far beyond anything you could have hoped or imagined. A hope where 1 Peter says, a new life that will never perish, spoil or fade. An inheritance waiting for us. See here Jesus is simply saying, do you believe? And that's the question for us this morning. And if you are able to say yes, you have claimed the victory of life. You come before God, you ask forgiveness for your sin and accept his substitution of the punishment that he paid on the cross. And you claim the great hope of the resurrection and you redirect your life around this truth. And you can go with great hope and great courage and great joy knowing that you have a hope beyond this world. A hope and a life where we're told in Revelation, 
where every tear will be wiped from your eyes. Jesus wept. We weep. But our hope is in a day where there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears. For the old order of things will pass away because Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. Well, on Friday, we, um, we had you come and put uh, sin, effectively, that we confessed on pieces of paper for those who weren't here. And Rachel had you place them into this bucket of water. Uh, now, today, we've got some flowers, and you could think of those flowers, the dissolution of your sin, uh, and the new life that comes through the forgiveness of Christ. You can see these flowers as representative of that. And today we've decided to symbolically, now nothing's going to happen when you do this. What matters is your heart and whether you believe. But symbolically, and, and look, I just want to say that if people don't do this, it doesn't mean they don't believe. <laughs> um, but if you would like to come and symbolically um, Rachel's going to come up and she's going to help you. Uh, we might even take the crown of thorns so you don't get hurt by it. We wouldn't want you to experience what Jesus experienced. Um, but we're going we're to put flowers on the cross. This is going to symbolize to us and your expression to say, yes, God has forgiven my sin and I claim this new life of the resurrection that he has also given to us. So... I'm going to pray. Uh, we might play the last song, Luke. Uh, sorry, Luke, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, we might play the last song while we're doing this. Uh, and then, you know, we, we'll, we'll finish with some music after that song. So take your own time. You can do it reflectively. You can come boldly, however it is. Or you can just stay where you are and just reflect. And then after a certain time, I'll come up and we'll... We'll close. So let me finish in prayer here and, uh, and we'll do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that we do not need to come in some blind faith, believing legends, but we come with great confidence in a historical reality where he was raised again from the dead. And Father God, we thank you the tomb was empty. We thank you that life is now ours to claim the victory through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the victory you have given us, a victory you have won for us, a victory you have pursued for us, and in your faithfulness you have suffered, but also you now bring us great joy. So, Father God, bless us now and help us to reflect well as we reflectively sing this last song and, and symbolically claim this victory for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.